You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Linda Gratton, who is a professor at London Business School. She's also the principal at HSM Advisory, which I think heads up this future of work consortium, which includes many, many companies from around the world. And of course, she's the author of a, wow, a ton of books. I think you said your 10th book. This is, I mean, there's so many books here. There's, right, The 100 Year Life. There's this one right here, Hot Spots. Why some teams, workplaces, and organizations buzz with energy and others don't, which I think became the start of a really big movement. In fact, my former dean, like, recommended that book to me, right, over a decade ago, which is where I first found out about your work and started really digging into it. You've got this one called How Corporations Succeed by Solving the World's Toughest Problems. You've got The Shift, Living Strategy, The Democratic Enterprise, Strategic HR Management, and of course, the most recent book, which is called Redesigning Work. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Greg. And thank you so much for having me on Unsiloed. Well, you know, of course, I have to have you on Unsiloed because of <laughs> you praise the boundary spanners in, in hotspots. And so we'll have to kind of dig into the boundary spanners. But I want to start off with the issue that everybody's talking about, of course, which is the impact of the pandemic on the workplace and the world. And I was just having a conversation with some students recently about this. And they said, well, you know, how did the pandemic fundamentally change the world? And I don't think it really did. I think what it did is it maybe accelerated things, but I think everything that came about as a result of the pandemic would have happened anyway. It just would have happened a little more slowly. In particular, this move from the co-location, both temporally and physically around the workplace. And I think you, in the book, you say something like, this was a once in a lifetime opportunity to really examine closely right? What is it about work that we want to keep and what is it that we want to reject? And so channeling one of Bill Clinton's advisors, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. I'd love to talk about kind of what the best companies have done as a result of this crisis with respect to how they organize work. And I think you really, in your book, not only analyze that, but also you offer some guidance. You have a, a wonderful website where you offer a kind of a four-step process that companies can dig into to try to embrace these new changes. Well, first of all, Greg, thank you for that introduction. And thank you for reminding me of all those. I think you had every single book that you might have missed out the democratic enterprise, but the truth is only my mother read the democratic enterprise. So <laughs> if anybody out there has read the democratic enterprise, I will send you a bottle of champagne. So I think actually, I think it accelerated, but actually I don't think we'd ever be in the place that we are now, you know, Greg, in terms of how people are working. And I'll tell you why I say that. And you, you perhaps remember I did a Harvard Business Review article in March of 2021. Yeah. Called, it was the front cover actually, I'm looking at it now, called Doing Hybrid Right. And I started with Fujitsu. And the reason I did that is that, you know, Fujitsu is a Japanese company. It's got the most traditional Japanese ways of working. And yet within two weeks, they moved 60,000 people out of the office into their homes I don't think Fujitsu would have done that in the next hundred years. So I did think it, it actually didn't simply accelerate. It actually forced people to change in a way that they never thought was believable. And 
in that process, you know, one of the things that someone asked me at the very beginning is what, what are the good practices? And, and I actually said at that stage, I don't think there's such a thing as a good practice. I think what we're doing is we're all going through a process of experimentation. And that's really what, why I wrote the book, because I wanted to show that, in fact, what's really important about this time that we're at now is none of us know what the outcomes are. I, I just spoke, you know, only this morning to Microsoft, in, in fact, and, and they don't know what the outcome is. So if they don't know, I don't know who does. So we are in this period of experimentation. So what I tried to do with the book is to say, look, there are four steps you need to go through. And that anyone who knows about design and systems thinking, and Greg, I bet a lot of your listeners do, will know that it's a design process. It says, first of all, you have to understand, and then you have to experiment and model, and then you have to test things out, and then you have to try and enact them. And that's what great companies are going through now. So for example, Microsoft right now is saying, we are listening very deeply to what our employers are saying and what they want. And we're also looking outside to see what others are doing. And the combination of those sort of data sets, the research that's coming out of that, is helping us to understand what the guidelines are for how we redesign work. And, and you know yourself that right now there's groups of experiments, some of which are about place, you know, office versus home. But I think as importantly are the experiments about time, you know, when do we work? What days do we work on? What hours do we work? And how we give to give ourselves time to do that amazing sort of focused work, which is so incredibly crucial for humans, you know, the time when you're thinking and pondering and, and using your brain. So I think it's an astoundingly interesting time and I just can't help but watch it every moment of the day. I kept um, a journal actually, Greg, from the very first day, which for me was the 24th of March. 2020. And I think I'm now into about 19 journals of this, just really writing down what I'm hearing. Well, I like how you used what I think most people in the Bay Area would recognize as kind of the design thinking process, right? The four steps or stages. I mean, I think you added some, some tweaks to it, but really, you know, I think you're emphasizing that this is sort of how you tackle any kind of change, right? How you tackle any kind of problem solving, right? You know, you have to start with with observation and understanding. And I think that at that phase, what you're really trying to understand is the work itself, right? You're trying to understand what exactly is it that your you know, company is doing and what exactly is it that leads to the productivity that you're trying to preserve or enhance. But I want to go back kind of historically because you do a little bit of history here and I'm a historian by training. There's a little micro history of the office and you refer to what's called the Model T version of the office. And where everything's kind of co-located nine to five and this reminded me when i was growing up as a kid my dad was an executive in a clothing factory here in uh, the united states one of the last kind of clothing factories in a downtown metropolitan area and it was a uh, tall building that had like eight nine stories the bottom two stories were executive offices and then the top seven stories were the factory and i remember because i would go down the office sometimes i would work in the factory and hang up my dad's office that, you know, at five o'clock, right, you know, the alarm would go off and everything would stop. I mean, all the workers would, you know, just stop what they were doing and they would, they would leave the building, they'd flow out to the subway and go home. But what was even more interesting to me was that all the executives would stop and they would all kind of leave and go out the back door to the parking lot and jump in their cars and, you know, drive home to the suburbs. That was just sort of the way of, of things. And, you know, we kind of clung to that a bit. Do you think that we were sort of prisoners of this model for a long time? I mean, you mentioned Goldman Sachs and so forth, but how much of this is, I don't know, just an unwillingness to question or how much of it was sort of an unwillingness to question 
the status quo? Well, I think the word prisoner of the model, Greg, is just a brilliant way of describing it. I think we were prisoners of the model. And, you know, if we go back even further than than our dads, and my dad would have had a similar experience, by the way, we could go back to the Industrial Revolution and the factories where people came from the countryside into working in factories. And that meant that they were suddenly co-located. They were in a factory together. Machines were determining when they worked. They worked very long hours, as you know. They would have worked longer than five o'clock, but they all did have very set, set times. And I think this idea of bringing people together in a factory-like situation was really the vision that we had of work. That's what work was. It was something that was co-located. It was often, you know, many hours away from where the home was. And it was something that men did. And, you know, your mum probably stayed at home. Mine certainly did. So it also had big gender implications. I felt, obviously, part of the reason I've written 10 books, Greg, is I've just felt really for since I worked on a factory in making chocolates, packing chocolates, you know, during my PhD, I just felt that this was not the way to work. And I, I suppose I keep battering on with each book, really making that point over and over again. And, and now I think we have a chance of changing models. And, and here's why. I don't think there was any great strategy on the part of CEOs to say, you know, this is the time. I think simply as humans, we know that habits change within 12 weeks. So I said at the beginning of the pandemic to myself and to others who were prepared to listen to me, If this thing goes on for more than 12 weeks, we will change our habits. Well, two years later, and our habits have changed, our behaviors have changed, our skills have changed. You know, we now, you and I are talking so easily on a platform. And I spoke, you know, a half an hour ago to somebody else on another platform in Boston. This morning, I was talking to people in Japan. We would never have done that before the pandemic. We didn't do it. And now we do. And so we've learned a lot of skills. Technology has has stepped up in a way that I think everyone's sort of been astounded at. We've taken it for granted now. And there is absolutely no way back. There is no way back. So either we take this opportunity to say, how would we like to work? What would it be to work in a way that helps us, that supports our families, that helps our communities, that helps us to grow, that helps us to, to work until we're 70s. You know, part of, you know, from reading The 100-Year Life, Greg, is that if you live to 100, which some people will, you work until you're in your mid-70s. That's the economics of long lives. And so, you know, when we, I said to people, you're going to work into your 70s, lots of people said, I can't carry on working like this until I'm in my 70s. Well, now we have a chance to change. Yeah, I can't imagine not working, but I think it's specifically because of the work that I do, right? I mean, if I was a coal miner, I could definitely imagine, you know, not working when I was that old. But you mentioned these digital skills and these digital capabilities and these these digital tools that companies have invested in. And I guess part of it is that, you know, there's a fixed cost. There's like an upfront cost, an integration cost or a skill acquisition cost. And it's, I guess it's very easy for companies and individuals to kind of procrastinate, kind of kick the can down the road. I mean, one thing that I think the pandemic has done at my institution is it's completely changed the viewpoint on kind of software licensing, right? So before the pandemic, my school did not license Slack, you know, it didn't license Zoom. It didn't, I mean, it kind of did, but, you know, even Microsoft Office 365 was pushing things a bit far for, you know, the IT departments in my schools. So I think there's like a fixed cost that we're kind of more or less forced to absorb, almost like the fixed cost associated with developing, you know, nuclear technology during World War II. I guess, is that part of the story? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, going back to the Fujitsu experience, if I had gone over to Japan, I go to Japan a lot. And I had said to Fujitsu five years ago, you absolutely have to have more flexible ways of working, which in fact, I did say that at the time. They would have done what any well-paid executive would have done, which is to create a strategy group to look at it and a project team. And they'd have said, well, the project team will probably take about a year to come back and tell us what we should be doing. So the whole thing, in other words, the can would have been kicked down the road and then it would have been kicked into the long grass, which it has been over and over in organizations. And I think you're absolutely right that there's no question there is a fixed cost. There's a fixed cost to organizations and indeed to individuals. I mean, you and I, Greg, are university lecturers. We both had to learn how to run a hybrid MBA program or a hybrid postgraduate program. That was a huge fixed cost for me. It took me, you know, a great deal of time to learn that. So, but we had to do it and organizations had to absorb that fixed cost. So I think one of the reasons I wrote the book and I wrote it as fast as I could, in fact, in Penguin, bless them, published it as fast as they could in, in, in the UK and MIT Press published it as fast as they could in the US is because I felt that about now, and I'm speaking April, May of 2022, people would begin to say, you know, I think we could just go back to how we were. And I, and I thought it was really important that all of us together said, no, we, we're not going to go back. There were many things wrong with how we worked. We have had, as you rightly say, I love your point about the fixed costs. Let's now build something different. And that I think is, that's why I say it's a unique opportunity. I've been at London Business School for more than 30 years. I've never had a moment where I felt so positive about the way work could change. Well, let's talk about two things, because you mentioned, you talk about productivity a lot in the book. And so we need to kind of dig into the things that drive productivity. And I love your framework, right? Your energy, focus, coordination, and cooperation framework. That's, I think it's brilliant. But then there's also this idea of kind of, you know, treating the employees more like customers, more like human <laughs> beings, right? And giving them more what they're looking for. Now, I don't think even those you can analyze these separately. I think they ultimately converge. I think you will get more productivity when you customize the work to suit the needs and preferences of your employees. Let's just start with productivity. And you know, I think that there's a debate on this. There are people that say productivity increased when people worked from home. And there were studies like this on call center employees and so forth that predate the pandemic. But then, you know, there's quite a bit of critics who say, well, you know, that only applies to certain types of work and it comes at the expense of creativity and it comes at the expense of, of innovation. And even before the pandemic, people like Marissa Meyer, right, were like, got to come back to work. We need that energy that we have uh, in the workplace. So what, what is the status of the science around, you know, productivity? And I guess, you know, I know you're going to say it depends on which dimension you're looking at, but tell what's the broad overview? Is there a consensus? And can we throw out the data from before the pandemic because things have changed? Well, the study you're, you're referring to, of course, is Nick Bloom's study on call center workers in China. And I bet that Nick never expected to have that study so referenced because when he did the study, nobody was much interested in it. It was just a study of remote working in a call center in China. And of course, once the pandemic hit, it was one of the few actual proper studies with group A and group B that got a sense of what was going. Now, what Nick found there is that we found two things I found really fascinating at the time. The first is that people working from home were as productive or more productive. And the reason they were as or more productive is they worked longer hours. 
And that, by the way, is true in general, that the reason I've been more productive, and perhaps you have as well, Greg, is that I've actually worked harder than I would have done before the pandemic, partly because there was honestly nothing else to do. So we were all just working crazily. The second thing he found is that when after six months he gave people the opportunity to either stay working at home, which is what they were doing, or to come back to the office, quite a high proportion said, I want to come back. I'm feeling pretty tired. I'm feeling as if my sort of social group is reducing. And I think that Nick actually, in that study, which was pre-pandemic, found a couple of things which were going to then play out in the pandemic. The first one was about productivity and the second one was about social networks, which is why in the book, as you saw, I talk a lot about social networks because I think knowledge flows are really important. I start with the design process by asking what helps people to be productive. And the reason I did that deliberately didn't start with the question, what do people want? Because my view, and I mean, Nick, I'm sure could have called me an old cynic on this one, but my view is that if you do something in an organization that inadvertently reduces productivity, the next CEO or the next recession or the next inflation, it'll all be pulled out. So you have to be convinced that what you're doing is helping people to be more productive. But what I said about productivity is there are four aspects of productivity we have to consider. The first is, is the way that you're working helping you to be energized? Secondly, do you have tasks that you do in your work where you have to focus? You know, part of the work that you and I do, Greg, as academics is we sit on our own in a study for four hours at a time thinking about stuff and conceptualizing stuff. Actually, quite a lot of jobs have aspects like that because, frankly, in many jobs, the boring stuff is already being done by AI and machines. So humans more and more are doing that sort of focused, thoughtful, judgment, decision-making stuff. And that you need to be, that's what you have to do when you're on your own, when you're undisturbed. And then there's coordination and cooperation. And coordination tasks, you know, managing large projects, could actually be done virtually. Most of them really don't need face-to-face. So that leads now to cooperation. And so where we are, I think, in terms of productivity, and this is the comment, the debate that we're having this week, as it were, is as people come back to the office, what is it that they can do to create as much value around any task they have, which is about cooperation? Let me give you an example. I was talking to a senior investment banker in New York last week. And she said, you know, Linda, I've just commuted one and a half hours from Connecticut to come into Manhattan, and I'm going to commute one and a half hours back. And all I've done all day, you know the answer to this, Greg, is she said, I've been sitting on Zoom meetings. I don't know why I'm here. So if we want people back in the office, and I think most companies do for at least some of the time, we have to make it a very attractive proposition. So that's why I started Productivity. And then I looked at networks and simply to say that actually, if you look at why people are productive, it's often to do with the networks they're in. So is, as we redesign work, how could we make net that those invaluable networks stronger and make sure they're not depleted? And then finally, I asked about the individual, how could we build a way of working that suits them as individuals? And that's always been really hard to do because... Organizations, obviously, it's easier from a bureaucratic perspective to lump employees together. So I'm 67, for example. So you lump all the, actually, there's nobody who's 67 working in a company, but let's say there were, you lump them all together or you lump all the women together. And that's ridiculous because we're all very different. So 
What we're seeing now, which I find sort of fascinating, is a greater understanding that each human is different. And what they want is different. It depends on their character, the job they do, their personal circumstances. So what we're now seeing emerging this month, as it were, is team agreements where teams sit down together and talk about how are we best going to manage both our productivity requirements, but also what we as individuals need. And, and I find that incredibly fascinating. The study I'm doing at the moment, actually, Greg, is about those team agreements. Yeah. I mean, we talked earlier about how we both started teaching a course related to the future of work at the same time back in 2015. And, you know, I mentioned that I didn't call mine future of work. I called it kind of, you know, workplace analytics, workplace science. And, and the thing that really struck me is that, you know, folks in HR were nowhere even close to where the folks in marketing were when it came to understanding individual differences, right? And yeah. I think it's in part because HR was just sort of seen as a cost function and you know, not as a strategic part of the organization. In fact, when I proposed to you know, one of my deans that teach this class and he said, well, why, why would anybody ever take a course on HR? Like, who cares about HR? And it's like, well, look, you know, it's, it's kind of the big deal nowadays, but. Yeah, you never put HR in an MBA subject matter. I agree. That's why. But Netflix, I mean, Netflix was, they said 10 years ago that these generic categories that the movie studios were using were, you know, total garbage. And yet here we are in a world of HR using these broad categories of jobs and these broad categories of people taking the jobs. And it's almost it's like a, a taboo to treat people as individuals. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that you're so right, actually, Greg, to make the comparison between HR and marketing. It's really interesting that in the book, when I talk about organizations that have done, I think, sterling work in terms of understanding individual employees, that work has almost inevitably done, been done by the head of marketing. So the head of marketing has said, I want to use these marketing tools that we use, which, for example, look at customer lifecycle, you know, look at whether your pain points, pain and gain points, all the things that are just normal everyday constructs for marketing, human resources have not used those constructs. And so in terms of unsiloed, where we've seen some really exciting and insightful work on understanding people and their jobs is because marketing concepts were brought into looking at what it is people want, what their pain points are, where they are in their development and so on. Right. So I want to just get back to productivity and, you know, the, some of the studies that we've done empirical studies, I think one of the problems with them is that it's hard to kind of make inferences about the future from the past because the, the technology is changing so rapidly. So for instance, you know, if we're evaluating remote collaboration in a pre-Zoom world and then trying to make inferences about what it would be like, you know, after we become pretty fluent and conversant in technologies like Zoom, it's kind of like seeing if autonomous vehicles can drive on our current highways and making inferences about how they would drive on a highway that was kind of redesigned for autonomy, right? Yeah. I mean, that's why I think I like the test and learn. We're going to have to just continuously iterate on what we're doing. Well, I was talking to Microsoft this morning and they, they were saying, you know, they, like many technology companies, you'd find the same in IBM, you'd find the same in TCS. They have very strong lead and lag measures of what is going on in the organization at any time. So they ask two questions on a daily basis to a subsection of the whole employer group, which gives them a sense of how are people feeling right now about hybrid? What are they getting from it? How is it helping their performance? 
And I think that that sort of data, which is really, you know, lead data, it tells you what's happening today is very important as they make decisions about what they're going to do with regard to the design of work. And in terms of lag, then they can also look back and look at productivity of groups and, and so on. So I think you're absolutely spot on there that the past work research on things like the use of technology hasn't really been, is of no use actually during the pandemic because we all learned new skills. We did things differently and we encountered different problems. You know, so for me right now, I think the number one challenge that companies are facing, and this is quite a specific point, Greg, but it'll be interesting to hear what you think, is because Zoom and Microsoft Teams is so easy, people have just filled their diary with Microsoft. And I'm seeing, you know, I talk to people eight or nine meetings a day, one after another, and that is proving to be massively, it burns out people. So, you know, I think every, so what we're learning is, and this is, a, you get burned out if you do eight Zooms a day, so don't do them. So think about asynchronous ways of working. So switch your video off. So all the time you're getting really constant feedback about what is happening in your organization right now? And frankly, Greg, and I don't know if you feel this as well, I feel the people who are practicing the work now are way ahead of me as an academic because they've got lead data, daily lead data that they can actually say, this is what we're seeing right now, right today. So we're going through an incredible learning and also ast astonishing experiments. One of the things that are amusing me at the moment is I just keep a record of every experiment that I hear. And, and it's just endless, you know, first mover advantages. Like, and I mentioned this in the book, you know, one of the investment companies saying, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year. I mean, if I was in Goldman Sachs right now, I'd be thinking, hang on, why don't I have that? You know, so there are like four-day week in Europe, we're very hepped up about the four-day week. I know that you in the US haven't got quite the same feeling about it, but, you know, we actually have experiments. Oxford and Cambridge together are running a whole series of experiments with five or six companies across Europe on the four-day week. So I think this is the moment where you try out anything and just see how it works. Now, Eric Schmidt just recently came out and said that he doesn't understand remote work. He said, you know, if you want to learn how to function in a large organization, if you want to learn the rules of the trade, if you want to learn to become a manager and how to manage people, like you have to be in the office. I think not only just to practice, but to observe others. And in your book, you, you have these, you know, you have a couple of these ideal customer profiles, one of which is an older person who's kind of well-established in the job, who is comfortable with remote. Because they, and again, there are a couple other characteristics. This person is a commuter, and so they're thrilled they don't have to commute. And then you've got this, and they have a large house, so they don't get on their spouse's nerves. But then you have this, this younger kind of employee that lives in a small, cramped apartment, relatively close to the office, who's just kind of getting her, finding her legs. And she's really kind of kneecapped by remote work. Do you think that that's just a temporary thing? I mean... I mean, obviously there's, there's constant elements here, but when Eric Schmidt says you'll never learn how to manage if you're not in the workplace, is he really saying you'll never learn how to manage a Model T type office if you're not in the office? If, if it's just that, like, who cares? Like, no, no one's going to need that skill anymore. And you're going to need a much more complex set of managerial skills that are location agnostic. And so, you know, is, is he basically just saying, you know, you're not going to learn a skill that you don't need anymore. 
Well, that's such a great question and such a great observation, Greg. And it, I think we can sort of take that question in a number of ways. You know, the first thing is the leader as narrator. So I think more and more leaders now are stepping up and saying, this is what I believe. And I think that's great that they're doing that. I mean, they may not be right, but at least they're saying, this is my belief. And Eric has said, and others have joined him, especially those who are running investment banks are saying, we want everybody in the office. It's, it's a very special place. Something magical happens there. We want you there. But there's other people. And, and I was just listening just, just now, actually, or just earlier to the CEO of Microsoft, who's saying, we want the data for us to decide whether or not you are more productive. And so we're collecting the data. And once we've collected the data and learned from our experiments, we'll come back with it to you and tell you what we think it is. So I think, you know, he's getting more of an experimental mindset. I think Eric's saying, I think it's hard for any CEO at the moment. Everybody's looking to their CEO to tell them, what do you want me to do? And so the easiest thing to do, as Eric said, and others said earlier, actually, in the pandemic, is I want everybody back in the office. And you can see that for young people who are inexperienced, and I wrote about this sort of, I'm lucky enough in many ways to have a column, MIT Sloan. And the reason I say I'm lucky is that it just forced me to write something every six weeks. And that meant, there it is. Yeah. And it just meant that, you know, from the very beginning, every six weeks, I had to say, oh my God, you know, I wrote about the observed and the observing really early on in the pandemic, but it remains an issue. And you know, I don't think any organization, I think very few organizations are going to say, you're going to be, you will never get into the office again. I mean, one of the companies I wrote about was Artemis Connection. You perhaps remember that. And I wrote about it because it's a company that's entirely virtual. It was entirely virtual before the pandemic and it remains so. And it's basically made out of people. It's made up of people who came out of McKinsey and BCG and wanted to do something different. So it's a strategy consulting practice. But I don't think many people are going to go that path of Artemis Connection. It takes, you know, a huge level of intentionality and understanding tacit knowledge and so on to do that. I think very few are going to say, we want you all back in the office all the time. I think what we'll, we'll move towards is hybrid. Now, as somebody from Microsoft said to me this morning, the problem with hybrid, it, it could be the worst of everything the worst of all worlds. And right now, to be honest, it sort of feels like that, doesn't it? Though I just went into the office at uh, London Business School today, but there was nobody there. So I've made it, and they will also have come in at a different time to see me and I'm not going to be there. Or you've probably yourself been in a meeting where half the people have been on Zoom or, or Microsoft platform and the other half are in the room. And that's horrible. So we have got to learn how to do this. And that's actually what I'm sort of focusing on right now is what are the tools and techniques and the ways of working that allow you to make hybrid work? Because I think we can make it work, but it has to be done much more intentionally. And there are companies, and Eric's might be one of them, where everybody has got to be back in the office. But the, if I don't know if you remember, Greg, you and I as university professors love two by twos. And one of the ones I created for the book was a two by two along which one axis was, you know, just how much potential somebody has, you know, from high to low potential. And along the other axis is how much flexibility they wanted. So if you're Goldman Sachs, you are actually fishing in a pool of people who are high potential, who don't want flexibility. Now, I think that's a pretty small pool. And it might be, by the way, a pool of people who have other characteristics that bring them together. What you're missing out is anyone who wants high, who is high performing or high potential and wants flexibility. So 
I think when Eric says that, I have no problem with that. And I didn't from the very beginning with Goldman saying we want everybody back. But there are consequences of those decisions, some of which are unintended, and they will be playing out over the next couple of years. And they will learn about that and they'll either decide there are enough people in the world who have uh, high potential and low needs of flexibility to fill those companies. And, you know, that's great. But there'll be lots of people that they want. They're not going to be able to either attract or retain. Yeah, so different companies may choose different policies and attract people with different preferences or personalities or, yeah. or working styles. Well, that's just, sorry, just to, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, Craig, but just to say, do you remember when earlier you said about the model forward T? The reason I brought that in was to say when our great-great-grandparents bought a car, they could only buy the Model 4T and it could only be black. But what we're seeing now is massive variety. So my guess is there'll be a lot of, a lot of variety between companies as they decide how to build a way of working which both meets their needs for productivity and also which attracts and retains the sort of talent that they want. It's like dine-in versus uh, take-out, right? <laughs> you know? yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that people are most worried about is, look, in your, in your book, Hotspots, like you really dial into what makes certain types of companies you know, really innovative and exciting, and, and you describe these hotspots. And I find it kind of hard to visualize a canonical hotspot that's entirely virtual, right? I mean, I just completed two weeks of immersion classes for Asha Say here in San Francisco. And, you know, the, they delayed them and delayed them and delayed them. And I think they did that for good reason, because the energy and the collegiality and the enthusiasm and, and the, uh, need I say, philia, you know, the camaraderie that is developed during that in-person experience, even if we weren't able to visit the, some of the big companies, we had to kind of invite them to a neutral location. The energy was palpable. And you just don't get that in kind of a remote setting, I think, at least, you know, for now. So I like how you talk about, you know, okay, there's coordination, there's cooperation, there are these different elements and there's, you know, there's tacit and there's explicit knowledge and there's basically break down the elements of what you're looking for and show that, well, different pieces are kind of encouraged or discouraged in different types of environments. And then the other thing that I really liked was that you pointed out that you know, we were already by moving from cubicles to open office, right? You know, we were already doing a gigantic experiment on how people work. And that by the time we moved to fully open office, most people were kind of already collaborating almost entirely remotely, more or less anyway, with their headphones on. Yeah. Well, again, wonderful observations, Greg. And just, just talk about two of the things that you've mentioned. The one is this immersive experience of being face-to-face. -face. And I feel that as well. And, and actually one of the groups that I'm, one of the sectors I'm really fascinated in at the moment is architects. So I spent last week with Fosters and Partner, which is Foster and Partners, which is the group actually that designed the Apple headquarters, not quite near you, that great big iconic building, and, and spoke to Stefan who designed that. And of course, he could speak from now till eternity about the importance of face-to-face because -face, architects, that's what architects do. They design experiences that are about face-to-face. -face. And architects will always talk to you about Burning Man and how important these cooperative experiences are. And they talk a lot about experiences. And I think that's just absolutely wonderful. However, let me give you another group who are saying something slightly different. So both Accenture and PwC, who between them recruit hundreds of thousands of graduates every year, 
last year and this year did it entirely virtually. Accenture did the, used a metaverse with, and they both have data on how people felt. And they they said, now we need to know a bit more about this. They said that the experience was as good as if they had met face-to-face. -face. Now, maybe the truth is, Greg, that the face-to-face -face experience, PwC and Accenture is not as exciting. So it doesn't really matter what you do with it. But I mean, everything in my body says face-to-face -face is really important. But you do hear of organizations who are doing quite amazing experience stuff. And let me just give you one more point on this. I wrote uh, an, an article in Harvard Business Review, which is at this month, on managers. And I wrote it with Diana Gerson, who stepped down as the chief human resource officer at IBM. She teaches at, at Harvard now. And we get on really well. We wrote this wonderful article. In fact, we just talked about it today on a podcast. Diana and I have never met. We've never met face to face. She's, you know, so I don't know. I, you know, honestly, Greg, I think that the jury's out on this one. I'm sure there's something really special about friendship. And I think you're right about young people, that actually the observation of young people. And I said this to Christy, who runs Optimus Connection. I said, well, hang on, Christy, what about young people? How do you help them? She said, we make it very explicit to them how you socialize this in this organization. And we tell them you know, what it is like. And we do it in a much more explicit, intentional way. They don't have to discover what this organization is. We tell them what it is. So, yeah, this is why it's so exciting to be you and I, isn't it, Greg? Because we're watching all of this massive experiment playing out and asking all these unanswerable questions. Yeah, I have to admit that when I read that story about the metaverse boat ride of the new PwC employees, I was a little skeptical, right? I mean, to me, it's like, if you and I were to have a drink together on Zoom, I don't think it would feel quite, it's still to me seeing smacks of drinking alone <laughs> and phone sex just doesn't seem like the, you know, the same thing. So I think that you're right, the jury is out, but I, I think that some people would say that, you know, co-location is important. And then I think also some people would say, that, you know, synchrony in time is also important. And you talk about the importance of serendipity. And I want to get to that because I think that's another thing that people have been worried about with this change in work that is driving kind of asynchronous communication and kind of scheduled interactions. How do we replicate the kind of serendipity, which so many organizations have, you know, they struggled to create it in the, in the real world. Does making things virtual make it harder? Or, you know, is there a way that maybe it might even make it easier? Maybe we could kind of develop an algorithm for automating the interactions. We probably couldn't do that in the real world. We couldn't use an algorithm to make sure that, you know, Sally walks by, you know, assume it going to the bathroom at exactly the same time, right? That would be something that we wouldn't be able to engineer, but we might be able to engineer it online. Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? Well, early on in the pandemic, when everybody was writing about what was happening. So it wasn't just people like you and I who have been talking about the future of work for 15 years. It was everybody in the world, as far as I can see. They talked a lot about serendipity and they talked about, you know, we used to be in offices and it was wonderful and we'd just bump into people and we'd, we'd a water cooler and blah, blah. And they actually, they were conjuring a picture of an office which actually didn't exist, as you know, because the research on offices before the pandemic showed that most people, especially in an open plan office, hated it so much. They went in, they put their headphones on 
and they looked at their computers. So this idea that everyone was somehow, you know, floating around meeting people, I don't think that was ever really the case. But the fact is that it is really great and innovative and creative to bump into people who are different from you. I mean, we, we know that from network theory, don't we? That those diversity of ideas is what makes for innovation. So the question I think is twofold. One is, as we go back to the office in a physical way, how do we create more serendipity? And secondly, the point you raised, Greg, which is, is there more that we can do virtually to create serendipity? And I think the answer to both of those is we can. It takes intentional design. And when I named this new book, one of the names that I sort of played around with was the idea of intentional design. And actually the publishers didn't like it at all. But actually, you know, in the case of offices, for example, people are now, if you look at Arup, one of the big engineering architectural firms, they move their teams I think I mentioned this in the book, actually, they move their teams every three months because proximity is so important and so valuable. They don't want the same people to be sitting next to each other all the time. So they actually move them around. So that's really how, and they built one of the things that, that Foster and Partners was telling me is that when they built, for example, the Apple building, there's a huge circulation process. You know, you have to go, if you want to go to the loo, for example, you can't just there's not a loo at the end of the corridor. You have to sort of promenade along this open space and to get your coffee or go to the loo. And in doing so, the idea is you bump into, into other people. So I think the question of how do we design spaces that encourage serendipity is going to be the top of people's agenda as we try and persuade people to get into the office. But I think your point about virtual is also really important. And certainly the tech companies are always way ahead on this because obviously that's their product. So TCS, Tata Consulting Services, for example, they have a measure of every single team's sort of serendipity, made, you know, measure in the sense of they look at their, at their communication patterns and the question they're asking is, did this team reach out to people beyond their boundaries? And they give them a, a measure of that, you know, 10, yes, you did, zero, no, you didn't. And they provide that data back to the team so the teams can then interrogate that data and say to themselves, are we too inward looking? Should we do more to reach out? And then, you know, and then you get these things like random coffees. I actually hate the idea of having a random coffee, but apparently it goes really well. You know, that every week or so, your the algorithm chooses somebody for you to have coffee with and you sit and have a virtual coffee with them. And apparently that's, you know, a positive way of creating serendipity. So I think the point that we're both making is serendipity is really important. And to create it, you need more intentional design, and that has implications both for the location, but also for virtual. Yeah, and I, I think certainly in academia, we've seen a bit of that, right? You know, the office that I worked at Berkeley was designed in the 90s, and it, I think it was designed to discourage collaboration. It was like every professor's office is designed in such a way that, you know, provides maximum peace and quiet. You don't run into anybody. You know, you're all by yourself. You have a view of the bay and that's it. And periodically people would stick, you know, their heads out from their hole, maybe to go grab a cup of coffee and then go back into their hole. But there weren't any of the things you'd see in a tech office where with couches and places to kind of bump into each other. And furthermore, they're hidden from the students and, and they're separate from the staff. So the staff and the faculty don't meet, the faculty don't meet with each other. And the faculty certainly don't meet with the students. So the whole thing is designed for what we might think of as focused work, the kind of work that I think was the dominant view of academic research at the time that the building was built. 
And, you know, if you really wanted to interact with people from other schools, which you probably interacted with more often than you interact with people from your own school in a different kind of faculty group, you would go to a conference or you would have kind of the weekly seminar where you'd fly someone in. And I, I found that since the pandemic, I wound up actually interacting with a much broader range of, of academics. And this podcast, for instance, I'd been thinking about it for 20 years, but I kept thinking I was going to have to have someone come and, and we would do an interview in front of an audience and blah, blah, blah. And then you need funding. And, you know, that was just not possible. And this is, you know, the kind of thing that's possible. Just one other thing on that, Greg. I'm sure at some stage you've been to one of the Oxford or, or Cambridge colleges, but I was just reflecting on your point about Berkeley. And, and by the way, London Business School is the same. In fact, we have corridors where the professors sit. And when the architects designed it, they designed doors which had some glass in it so that you could see the professor. You know what we all did to that. We covered it all up. So, But actually, the interesting thing about an Oxford college or a Cambridge college is that Oxford University is that the college faculty eat together. There's a common place called often the common place where faculty eat and drink and talk. And I don't know if you've been to one of these college dinners that, well, they're marvelous. If you get a chance, you know, that they're, they're very long tables. You sit around the table in the really fancy ones. You have your first course in one room and then you move to another room for your port and dessert, which is often lit by candles. So there we have it. But yes, I mean, this, these common, this common space that we can all use for, to entertain ourselves and so on is really wonderful. And I think as we go back to thinking, why would we go into the office? What would the office bring that we don't get from home? One of the questions will be is how do I up the experiences of being there? That, you know, the friendship, the communality, the face-to-face -face stuff, that very important survey question, I have a friend at work. That is the number one predictor of whether you stay in a company. I have a friend at work. I think at different universities have different flavors of faculty, and obviously that's going to attract a different type of faculty. Most of my colleagues were thrilled that the pandemic allowed them to, you know, not have to go to work. I live across the street from my office. So I would go to the office every day anyway, because I wanted this. Mm -hmm. I always kind of thought that having that separation was important and these sort of switch on, switch off. I remember for a long time, I would refuse to look at work emails when I was at home. And, and of course that went by the wayside a long time ago, but I think for some people, they just never wanted to you know, go to the office. But when we think about these boundary spanners, are they born or made? Well, you know, there is, I speak as a psychologist and you probably know that there is data on the personality of boundary spanners. A couple of really interesting things about them. They tend to be inquisitive and inquisitive and curiosity is a born thing, actually. It's one of the big five, you know, psychological traits. You know how curious you are and boundary spanners tend to be more curious. The other thing about boundary spanners, Greg, and I didn't mention it in this book, but I think I might have been in the previous book is the research suggests they tend not to get to the top of the organization because they don't build a power base. So, I mean, I would consider myself a boundary spanner, but I'm not the Dean of London Business School. And I think that what happens with boundary spanners is that they build multiple constituency, they build multiple groups, but they don't, they, so they go across rather than up. So, so you have to be a boundary spanner, you have to have probably not low power needs, but you can't be, if you're incredibly status driven, then it's hard to be a boundary spanner because a boundary spanner is basically somebody who's prepared to, in terms of the narrative of their own lives, they're prepared to subsume 
the narrative of another group. So I span the boundary between academia and business people, people like, you know, Diana Gerson, who I wrote with recently. And what you notice with boundary spanners is they adopt some of the identity of those groups when they're there. So they have lower needs for their own sort of, they're more like chameleons and that personality trait. Yeah. So they probably are born, but there's maybe masses you can do to become a boundary spanner, even if you weren't born a boundary spanner. Well, you mentioned something about they have kind of a higher metacognition in the sense that they know how to calibrate them depending on what group or they're talking to. I wouldn't use the word cognition. No, I think what they've got is they tend to have self-awareness. So their boundary spanners tend to be more able to adapt their behavior to the circumstances that they find themselves in. So for our listeners, just to remind listeners, a boundary spanner is somebody who moves between two groups. So in the case of Greg and I, or certainly in the case of me and possibly of Greg, moving between silos, you know, in my case, the silo of the practitioner, but it could also be, you know, moving to, as you do, Greg, between one, one discipline and another. And each discipline has its own frameworks, its own language, its own theories. And actually spanning that can be very powerful, but it is difficult. You know, my last book, my last two books, A Hundred Year Life and The New Long Life were both written with an economist. And and I don't know if this is true, but a number of people have said to me, they think this is the first time as an individual level psychologist and a macroeconomist, he's not a micro, he's a macroeconomist, have actually worked together. But the hundred year life has sold more than a million copies. So we did get something right there. Of course. So I guess the question I would have is one would think that macro, that boundary spanners would suffer from the move to uh, more remote work and the kind of centered work because being a boundary spanner requires this kind of serendipity and, and moving around and so forth, which might be a little more difficult, but I think it, that may not be entirely true. And, and one of the reasons might be that, you know, you talk about politics. Do you think that a lot of the people who were sort of resisting the migration away from the old workplace were the people who thrived in that workplace, right? That, that, they had the personality type or the, you know, maybe had the political skills that enabled them to thrive in that environment. And so that's, of course, why they might have resisted it. And those people might not do as well in this new environment. People with uh, maybe, I don't want to say less political skills, but maybe different political skills would thrive in this new environment. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting hypothesis, actually, Greg. I mean, two things you've mentioned here. One is, would boundary spanners do less well? remotely. I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. It would be, we could spend time thinking about that, but I don't know the answer. The second is about, do you think that the politics, you know, people who are skilled at politics in the old way of working might find it difficult in the new? And I think that's a really interesting point. One of the things that Diana Gerson and I said in our HBR article, one of the things that we said, and this was before the pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated is the use of power. So, you know, Historically, managers were sort of powerful people. You know, they controlled people's careers. They controlled the tasks that they do. They controlled the, the information they received. They controlled whether people got promoted. But that really is not the case anymore. And actually, what, where it used to be, it's all about me, I, me, the manager. It's now much more about it's us, it's we. So I'm not, you know, in one of the early questions you asked is, does it, did this accelerate things that were already in place. I think this is an acceleration. I think the changing in power structures was already in play. 
But I do think that the pandemic has accelerated the change in power structures. For example, you know, part of the way that the CEO kept their power structure was the way they dressed, the sort of artifacts they had around them and so on. And you've now seen, as I have, CEOs sitting in their room, in their, their shirts. In one case, I talked to a CEO last week with a cat on the desk and I had to say to him at some stage, can you stop stroking the cat? So, you know, and that was not a power move on his part. It was him being himself. So I think that your point about power and politics is a really interesting point. And my guess is that a lot of this will, if we were to meet in a year's time, and I'm sure we will, Greg, then, you know, we'll be talking about, well, what did we learn about that? Well, Linda, last question. And I think this ties together your book, The 100 Year Life, and the most recent book, Redesigning Work. You talk about portfolio life and how, you know, we used to have these phases in our lives that were very distinct, right? You know, you'd be a student, then graduate, and that would, that would it. No more learning, right? You'd go to the workplace and you'd work and then, you know, you'd retire and then, you, I don't know, you'd play golf or whatever people did in retirement, right? And, you know, you point out that this has been kind of going away for a, a long time and, and that we've moved towards what you call portfolio life. And I really like this term and it kind of reminds me a bit, if I tie it back to the workplace, this idea, it's almost like the APIification of the human experience, right? In that, you know, we you know, mix and match and plug and play and we can, our work life is kind of project oriented, right? And you actually describe a couple of these companies where you put someone on a retainer and then you have them do projects. And I've seen my, my students and my former students, in, you know, when you, when you say to them, Hey, I'd like to have you come in and speak to my class as a representative of Microsoft. And you know, the class is in, in six weeks. They're like, well, Hey, six weeks from now, you know, Hey, I might not be at Microsoft. I just had drinks with a friend of mine and I said, I haven't seen you in a week. What's happened? He's like, well, you know, I switched jobs. We quit on Tuesday night, start a new one Wednesday morning. So it's not just that we're, we're hopscotching temporally, but also synchronously people have multiple jobs and side gigs. And, you know, I'm teaching at three universities and I work with, you know, a dozen companies and I've got the podcasting. And if companies refuse to acknowledge this portfolio life, then I think they're going to lose out on, on some of the best people, right? Is, is, this, is there a tension between portfolio life and really getting the kind of buy-in that, that companies want in order to build greatness? Yeah, thanks so much for making that connection, Greg, because I think it's a really important connection between the 100-year life, which means you work until you're 70 at a time of massive technological disruption, which means you have to change what you do, you know, not infrequently, and you have to do that on your own. And what's happening with the redesign of work, which is fundamentally about flexibility. The redesign of work from the individual perspective is about more flexibility with regard to when and where they work, time and place. And so if you bring those two together, then suddenly you get enough flexibility to be able to in make the investments that you need to build this multi-stage life, as we call it, where you do different things in different sequences in a much more individualistic way. So the two are absolutely brought together and the companies who don't redesign work will fail to attract and retain people who want more choice and flexibility about their life and their life path. And I suspect that's a lot of people, Greg. Yeah, I think you're right. Linda, it's been great chatting with you. We Thank could you, probably Greg. chat for a long time. We barely scratched the surface of your books. And, you know, if you're interested, not only keep up with Linda's publications in HBR, 
MIT Sloan Management Review, but also get this wonderful website connected to the book, which gives employers the ability to do this four-stage kind of process on their own companies and work through the designing, redesigning work process on their own. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been such a pleasure speaking on Unsiloed. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.